Hey, Dr. Drew here, and you are listening to the PR and Law Podcast with Cam and Ewan. Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and Ewan Christie. This is the PR and Law Podcast, episode number 12. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada. And you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. I am a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications Newsletter. And you can sign up for that and find it online at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with a friend. Uh, you can uh, find us on social media as well. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's all pretty easy. Uh, it's the same uh, same account name across all of those networks. It's PR Law Podcast. So you can go to facebook.com slash PR Law Podcast, twitter.com slash PR Law Podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and you can also find us on YouTube if you want to listen to the show that way. In addition, uh, we'd love it if uh, you would support us on Patreon. That would be great. Uh, you can find our Patreon page through prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. And lastly, we would love to get your questions. And so you can tag us on social media with the hashtag prlawpod, and uh, we will answer your questions on the show. So, Ewan, what is happening with you? Well, you know, Cameron, not too much. Uh, every day is exactly the same here. That's what it feels like. Still in lockdown. Uh, so Toronto no, no me- yet? No, not yet. You know, things have, things have, have started to finally open up. Uh, you know, patios are, are now open. So we saw a lot of people out having, having drinks um, social distancing and not social distancing, frankly, from, from, from what I could tell. We're hopeful that our our daughter can return to to preschool soon. It looks like that's going to happen about the middle of July, which is exciting uh, for her and for us. Uh, But until then, uh, still, you know, just keep on keeping on, Cam. What's what's going on your end? Uh, well, it's uh, it hasn't been that great of a week in Hong Kong either, actually. Uh, but I want to start sort of with worldwide numbers because we kind of hit a milestone this week. Uh, 10 million cumulative cases of COVID-19 worldwide. And uh, of those 10 million, 499,000 deaths. So we're almost at the half a million deaths mark uh, from COVID-19. The U.S. is a story all into its own. Uh, It's now up to 2.56 million uh, cases with 127,500 deaths. Canada at 103,000 cases, 8,500 deaths. And I mentioned Hong Kong. Uh, We're we're actually up to 1,200 cases cumulatively. Um, Very low by by, by many other countries' standards. Uh, But we did have another two deaths last week. So uh, the count in Hong Kong is actually up to seven. But I think the U.S. kind of steals the headlines for the week because... Uh, I know that Texas and Florida in particular 
um, are seeing cases spike in such a huge way. And uh, Texas, in fact, is is now reversing some of its uh, opening policies and the bars are going to be closed down again. Um, and there were cases, um, you know, in Florida where the beaches look like they're packed. I mean, people are out and about and you're seeing thousands and thousands of new cases now every day. I mean, this is this is very ominous for the U.S. Yeah, I saw in in Florida, it was either Thursday or Friday that they had 9,000 new cases in a in a day, which was up from sort of the previous record of 5,500. And again, you know, sort of the, the, the obvious explanation for that is they're testing in far greater numbers than they ever were. But uh, I, I saw a report that that was speaking precisely to that point in Florida. And it said that the average percentage of tests, sure, they've, they've, they've gone up, but the average percentage of tests that came back positive is five times higher than what it was at the beginning of the month. So it's not just that they're testing more, it's that the positive numbers that are coming back of confirmed cases after the testing is significantly higher than what it was at the beginning of the month, apparently. And it felt too like, I mean, the the George Floyd murder and the protests that that came after that, I mean, very worthwhile, very high profile, lots of media attention, but it kind of pushed COVID to page two, page three of a traditional newspaper. We don't have pages anymore, but, um, you know, I, and I think that was also detrimental because I think people sort of forgot about it or it wasn't as important suddenly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's lingering around. It's, it's not going away just because, you know, the news cycle changed. So I think it's in Canada's interest also to keep, keep the border closed. I mean, there's a lot of economic fallout from that. Uh, but I think the risks are just too high in terms of, you know, how much COVID is spreading down there. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's sort of the issue, right? It's that cost benefit analysis because, you know, we, and we talked about this last week, the United States is Canada's largest trading partner. And the longer that border remains closed, the greater the economic impact, not only in the United States, but also on Canada. So as you can, I'm sure you can imagine, Canada is eager to get that border open. We want, I mean, we want to get it open, but we can't and we don't want to open it until we know that it's safe to do so. So we're, I mean, we are hopeful, uh, probably just as much as, as, as the average American that things get sorted out sooner rather than later down south because we we need that border open. We need to get the economy firing again here in Canada. And really, it's going to be very difficult to do that for as long as that border remains closed. Yeah, and I, I can't see how it can be opened. I really can't. I mean, I, I, I think... I don't want to beat a dead horse here because we talk about this every week, but the way that the U.S. has handled this pandemic from the very top and right on down has been a colossal disaster. And I, I don't think we've reached the worst part yet because we're now seeing the rest of the world. I saw an excellent chart today. I'll, I'll try and find it, put in the show notes, but it showed uh, Germany, Italy, uh, the U.S., and I think China. And it showed in all of them a spike in cases and then a, a deep decline as people started paying attention to, to masks and social distancing. And the U.S. plateaued at that high level and now is going up further. And it takes a long time to bring the case numbers down, uh, for even from where it is today. But we know at this rate, two, three weeks from now, a month from now, it could be a lot higher. And we're looking at months and probably into 2021 uh, before this can be brought under control. I, I think it's a serious problem, and I don't think it's getting enough attention in a way, because there are implications, not just on Canada's economy, uh, but worldwide. And we finally started to see um, the stock market reflect that to some degree last week. It came down a nudge, uh, but I, I think it's got a long way down to go, because I think people haven't 
quite priced this in yet. It's much worse than people are thinking. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I suspect you're you're absolutely right. And we're going to start to see further global economic consequences. Because to your point, I think you know a lot of people were sort of getting on, getting on, um, getting back to normal, and weren't really paying attention, assuming that sort of the United States, like most countries, was 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 doing the same thing. Uh, but the evidence is is clearly starting to suggest the contrary. You know, and I, I'm obviously following the sports leagues because. It is also a bit of a disaster, not to go in, you know, into the weeds on it, but, you know, uh, MLS, the the North American Soccer League is planning to start up in Florida. The NBA plans to start up in Florida. I mean, Florida's got the most cases right now. Uh, You know, the the Tampa Bay Lightning NHL team ended up with a bunch of players uh, getting COVID-19. Uh, the big hockey player in Toronto, Austin Matthews, had COVID-19. I mean, it's it's still spreading to such a degree. I, I don't know how these leagues can start. The PGA Tour also was hit with a number of cases among among players on the tour. Uh, and, and Major League Baseball plans to still fly around, um, you know, throughout the country. Uh, playing games. I, I This just seems like such a fantasy to me. <laughs> I, I, I wonder what world they're living in coming up with these plans, uh, because I, I don't see how it's going to happen. Or we're getting to the point where we're just going to accept that people are going to get COVID and just press on with it. And that is one way to go. That's sort of how Sweden has decided to go. The UK has gone that way to some degree. Um, but, uh, but I think when you take a look at what COVID's doing to people, and there's also a huge increase in the US for people aged uh, 19 to 49 uh, who are ending up in ICU, it's not just an elderly person's disease. Not to, to go all over this again, but at the very beginning, when the World Health Organization basically said that, that it's not transmissible between people, it's only a threat to the very old and masks, wearing masks doesn't necessarily help. And those three things have caused so much damage because they were some of the first information out from the World Health Organization and people have clung to that. It's what they remember. And I still hear those same three things mentioned today when all of them are absolutely wrong and dangerous. Yeah, look, I mean, the moral of the story is you've got to get the message on point and accurate out of the gate. And we, we just, we didn't do that. It didn't happen. And we're, you know, we're, we're, we're paying for it long-term. All right. You and I want a, a little bit of a, a detour here because there was another incident last week. I never thought I would bring this kind of thing up on the podcast, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, there was a, uh, a death in Vancouver and it was mentioned sort of in the local media there, uh, a guy named Miles Ramsey. And I had no idea who this was and I had very little interest in who he was until they started talking about who he was. And he actually was born and raised in the U.S. and he came up to Vancouver uh, to do some singing and acting work. And he actually came up with this. And tell me what this is, Ewan. What is it? Good question. I totally recognize the melody, but I can't place what it is. Right away. This is the A and W root pair. Oh, I right. can't believe you didn't catch that. Oh, I totally. I, the melody is stuck in my brain, but no, I didn't. I, I couldn't place it. Couldn't place it. Yeah, and he. Uh, anyway, Miles Ramsey actually created this jingle at a little place called the, and he founded this little mountain sound company. Uh, in Vancouver. But actually, it, it, I mean, this was created in the 60s. Uh, he made it. But actually, the other interesting thing, you and, and you may remember the Chevron commercials in Canada. 
that ran, I think they ran throughout the 90s, and they were sort of just a, a, a plain-looking guy in a blue Chevron shirt and a white background talking to the camera. Do you recall those? V- vaguely. Very vaguely. vaguely. I don't know what I showed you, but actually it's the same guy. <laughs> so oh. the same guy who wrote the A&W jingle also served as like the Chevron spokesperson for a very long time. And I guess he had left quite a mark in the advertising world. And that's kind of why I bring it up uh, on this show. I think um, th- there's a lot of people like this that might do something big that gets seen or heard by millions and millions of people, but their name is never known. I think this is such a good example of that. If you show a Chevron commercial, I, I believe me, if I showed you one of them on YouTube, you'd right away go, oh, yeah, that guy. Um, but yet they pass away and they move on and we never really know who they are. So uh, I did want to, to mention that today because it's a good local story from Canada. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right. Well, last week, Cam, as you, as you might recall, we talked about the United States Supreme Court and, uh, and a decision determining that the definition of sex would include sexual orientation and uh, gender identity as protected grounds. So this, this week, I wanted to talk about a decision of the Canadian Supreme Court, which frankly, I think will have some pretty broad reaching application in, in other countries as well. And this is a decision um, dealing with Uber and the gig economy. So we're dealing with a plaintiff named David Heller. He is an Uber driver in Toronto. And in 2017, he sued Uber, alleging that the company was breaching the terms of its contract and Ontario employment law by characterizing all of the Uber drivers as independent contractors rather than employees of Uber. And he went on to subsequently file a class action lawsuit. Now, this is an important distinction under the law cam, independent contractor versus employee. Independent contractors have few, if frankly, if any protections under the law, whereas employees, you know, they're entitled to things like a guaranteed minimum wage, vacation pay, public holiday pay, overtime pay, severance, uh, and any other other benefits that are sort of afforded under the the Employment Standards Act. Right. Also, okay. so I guess uh, yeah, an employee, someone who is like actually part of the company, you know, uh, an employee who is entitled to all the benefits of all other direct employees. Where a contractor is somebody who is sort of at arm's length. Is it fair to say that somebody who is working according to a contract um, that is separate from that has a start and an end date, maybe, and is separate from all of the other employees. Well, you know what you're what you're trying to summarize, and and it's and even just listening to you try and put it together, it's rather complicated, right? How do you determine the boundary between an independent contractor and an employee? It's it's a difficult question. So, you know, I mean, different different jurisdictions have dealt with this question differently in terms of trying to set out a, a test or framework for what would qualify as an independent contractor or an employee. I mean, and the reason it's an important distinction is because there's all kinds of benefits from an employer's perspective to characterize employees as independent contractors rather than employees. As you know, all those things that we pointed out, 
would be benefits that the the employer would not have to provide to an independent contractor. Um, it's a huge, huge, huge issue. And, you know, everybody talks about the gig economy. And when the gig economy initially emerged, it seemed like a pretty magical thing, right? That, you know, everybody sort of gets to be their own boss and can take care of themselves. Uh, but really what it's turned out to be is an opportunity for a lot of employers in a lot of circumstances to take advantage of the employer-employee relationship by branding people who would most certainly, uh, under legal circumstances, if anyone was to challenge the, the relationship, be employees under the law rather than actual independent contractors. So this was Heller's argument. He said, Uber, look, I think I'm an employee, not an independent contractor. And he wanted to bring a class action lawsuit. And again, the class action lawsuit, the reason it would be advantageous to do this is that you can effectively, you put a, uh, the, the case before the court and the argument you're making to the court is that it's to the benefit of the court to deal with this matter as a class action where we can incorporate every employee or independent contractor, depending on how you're classifying them, under one piece of litigation. So instead of dealing with individual lawsuits, we collectively put them together and we say that this is the most efficient way to proceed with the action in the court. So this was Heller's argument. He wanted to proceed with the class action. Uber, now Uber turns around and it says, well, no, First of all, you're not an employee, you're an independent contractor. And of course, they've been militant about maintaining this distinction. But then they, they sort of took things a step further and they said, well, based on the terms of your agreement with us as a company, you do not have the right to sue us by way of class action. Instead, and as your agreement stipulates, you have to abide by our arbitration clause. And here's the catch cam of the arbitration clause. So the, the arbitration clause as it exists in all the Uber drivers contracts in Canada anyway, is that you have to proceed by arbitration in the Netherlands and that there's an upfront filing and administrative fee of 14,500 US dollars. And, and, you know, of course, if you wanted to bring such a, such a, a claim, you would also then have to pay for any travel costs to the Netherlands, any legal fees if you wanted to retain counsel to act on your behalf. And of course, all of the lost wages in, in not being able to work during the period that you're, you're engaging in this dispute with the employer or the company. And, you know, keep in mind at the time, Heller was making about 30 grand per year as an Uber driver. So financially, this just is ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, I'm I'm with you so far. Is You're there with more me so far? Because <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> I I um I can hear in the uh, inflection of your voice your feeling about this, and um and I I I know there's more to this story. I'm sure you're going to go into, but I I think it is a legitimate discussion to have over whether these are employees or not, because I mean, to, to a huge degree, they would be very different from employees, not just in the sense um, of a typical contractor, but in the sense, if you're an employee, most likely you are going to submit a resume or a CV and you're going to go through rounds of interviews to check your suitability. Uh, You're going to be tested. Um, 
people are going to check your references. I mean, all of these things. And then you're going to have a supervisor who's literally overlooking you and helping you with your career, ideally, and so on and so forth. Like, none of this happens at Uber. There is There are some barriers uh, in terms of the vehicle and your driving record and things like that. But it really is like you can work for them when you feel like you don't have set hours or days. You can do one hour a week or you can do 10 hours a day. It's up to you. Um, so it is there are downsides to this. Obviously, uh, there's downsides to the gig economy, which I think you're mentioning in terms of, you know, some of the benefits that you miss out on. But then there are upsides to the gig economy as well that I'm quite envious of from time to time. So I, I, I think it's difficult to say that, that it's wrong outright i know you haven't said that but i felt we were kind of going down that path well i i'm i'm not saying that and you know and and you you raise a good point in in certain circumstances there are certainly benefits to being an independent contractor rather than an employee there can be significant taxable benefits in in proceeding under that basis but what's interesting about this case is that uber wasn't even permitting heller to proceed through the courts to have the courts evaluate that question. Is he an employee? Is he an independent contractor? Rather, they're saying, you know, your agreement that you signed with us precludes you from being able to do that. And that if you have a dispute with us, the resolution as per your agreement is that you have to travel to the Netherlands to engage in in an arbitration with Uber uh, at a cost to you of 14,500 US dollars. That's the problem. And these sort of Binding arbitration clauses, Cam, have become quite common, particularly in the in the United States and in large corporate enterprises, where you have a lot of employees that are effectively signing these agreements, and unbeknownst to them, uh, they contain these arbitration clauses. And often, you're dealing with employees who are not particularly sophisticated, um, who are not in a position to retain legal counsel to have them review their agreements, and they're effectively signing away. Um, a lot of a lot of liberty in terms of the dispute resolution process. And the reason this is a huge leg up for for the companies is that these clauses typically um, give the employer the discretion to determine to determine where and when the mediation or arbitration will take place, and also to determine who the mediator or the arbitrator will be. Which means that you know they then have the luxury of choosing someone who is going to most likely be more sympathetic to their position than the position of the the employee. All right. There's a couple different things in here. One, I mean, there's the question of entering into a contract and knowing in advance what those terms are. That's one part. But then the second part, I think, is what you're talking about, is have, have, the, empl- have the employers or these companies got an unfair advantage and are they restricting rights that should be granted from these people in terms of seeking yeah arbitration or or a class action or whatever whatever it might be and i i do think these are two very very separate things because this guy knew i mean uber is not uh, a fringe company people have never heard of i think people know how uber works and how it's worked for many many years now and he knew the terms going in. I mean, it's very, very difficult for me to sit back and go, okay, this guy has a case. I mean, basically, he he went in, he had his eyes open, he started driving as an Uber driver, and then partway through decided he didn't like the terms that he was working under and was going to bring it via a court case. And yeah, I, I don't I don't blame Uber for coming back the way it did it it is. Um, 
that's its responsibility also is to, you know, make it difficult to suffer any sort of financial loss. Um, so I, 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 there's nothing wrong. I mean, the incentives are there for Uber to take this action. I don't blame them when the incentives are aligned that way. I think what you're talking a little bit about is more, more sort of a moral issue. Um, <laughs> uh, if, if they should be able to do this or not, is that right? Well, I'm 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 not trying to trying to take a moral position either way. Actually, I'm I'm trying to just sort of speak to some of the legal consequences from the employee's side, and frankly, from the from the employer side. And and here, you know, Heller he effectively argued that the arbitration clause was so unfair that it was unconscionable, or that it would be you know it was invalid and should be struck. And that it was simply part of, you know, a standard online form contract that all Uber drivers were compelled to sign. Um, and that as a delivery driver, he didn't really have any ability to negotiate the terms with, you know, a powerful multinational like Uber. That was effectively effectively the argument that the the arbitration clause should be set aside, which would then permit Heller to continue to proceed with his class action lawsuit to determine whether or not he is an employee under the law or an independent contractor. So, do you want to guess where the uh, which way the Supreme Court on. landed him? One one last thing. You mentioned that he, when he signed the agreement, he didn't have the power to negotiate with Uber the terms. And on this point, I think it is very similar to an employee. An employee doesn't have that power either. I mean, companies hire somebody and they often give them a contract or a list of conditions or or terms of their employment. And people cannot go back most of the time. I mean, I think someone in your situation or in a, in a professional role can maybe have some influence on that. But, you know, the vast majority of people take whatever they're given, whether it's a company or a contracted position, because people just gen generally don't have that power to to influence you know companies' behavior. But anyway, go ahead. How did the Supreme Court rule? Well, I think you know just to quickly to comment on on I, I wouldn't disagree with you, particularly with with low level positions. You know, frankly, if you're an employee making forty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year and in sort of an entry level position or low level position, that's effectively a dime a dozen. You're right. Um, rarely does the employee have the ability to sort of negotiate the terms of employment, be it you know the title of the position, the salary, the hours worked. They don't have a great deal of bargaining power. However, what I would say, is that in those circumstances, those types of employment agreements are typically pretty straightforward. You're going to see a, you know, maybe a, a three-page employment agreement where the terms are relatively straightforward, or at least such that you know you could, for those individuals, if they were in a position to financially uh, retain counsel to review the agreement, it's something that a lawyer could do with them sitting down within an hour. Now a lot of these online agreements and you know this isn't unique to the employment relationship think of any other agreement that you 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 know you sign quote unquote or agree to in an online form that goes on for pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and often i take the time and i read through these just because i'm curious to see what sort of clauses are included in them but what i can certainly say is they are not such that you know the a layman could understand them. And that even as someone who reviews these sorts of agreements on a daily basis, I have to say that some of the language is incredibly convoluted and difficult to understand. Anyway, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Now, getting to the to the decision, uh, well, the Supreme Court almost unanimously, Cam, sided with Heller. It held that the, the arbitration clause was in fact unconscionable, 
and that there was clearly inequality in bargaining power and sophistication between Uber and Heller here, and that Heller could not have been expected to understand the legal and the financial implications of the arbitration clause. So they set the clause aside, said it's invalid, and that now permits Heller to proceed with his class action lawsuit to um, to determine you know, if, in fact, he and other Uber drivers are employees or independent contractors. So that ruling doesn't surprise me because it happened in Canada. I think, um, I mean, the one... The one part of that that I really have difficulty with is the words that you said that Heller could not have been expected to understand. And I, I think saying that, I, I, there's many layers to that statement. I mean, they're basically saying that he he's not smart enough to understand or he's not savvy enough to understand or it's too complicated for him to whatever way you want to try and explain that it comes across as actually quite insulting to Heller himself. And I don't know if we should be ruling this way because we're taking away his own agency to some degree. We're saying, okay, you can create somebody with a contract, but if it's, if it's too, if, if the court deems it too difficult for him to understand that we can step in on his behalf and penalize this company. And I think that is scary for large companies that could be put in that situation. So I think from Heller's perspective, I get it. But looking at it from a corporate perspective, this is chilling, actually, because if if, if that's the standard that's being set, uh, that this could have all kinds of ramifications. Well, yeah, I mean, you're not you're not wrong. And that's certainly the argument that the that the employer would make. Um, you know, all I'll say to that, Cam, is that courts are generally very, very reluctant to interfere with the contractual terms between parties and to set aside those contractual terms. They're very, very reluctant to do so. Um, <clears throat> and I don't think, you know, it, it was it was sort of demeaning in any way to Heller. I mean, the, the term sophistication or inequality in bargaining power between parties is sort of frequently used language when when parties are 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 pushing or trying to have a contract set aside, so I, I don't I don't think it was intended to be demeaning to Heller. Oh, I, I know it wasn't intended that way, but it does it does come across that way by saying somebody could not have been expected to understand. I mean, I, I know they're not intending to insult him, but but that's kind of the the result. I, listen, I, I, there is sort of an ideological bent here because how you feel about this case kind of does probably tell people how you feel about some other things. I mean, I, I am all for employee rights for sure. And I think uh, actually, especially now in the United States, but in other countries as well, yeah, employees are, are taken advantage of to, to a pretty high degree. And I think it's getting worse. It's getting better at the top. It's getting worse uh, at the lower, lower levels of companies. Um, but in this kind of a situation, I, yeah, I, I, I do have a problem when someone accepts a, uh, the terms of a contract signs his name and then has a problem later. Um, that that that's sort of where I'm uncomfortable with it uh, because it, it does set that precedent. I mean, what if if somebody can do this? What precedent does it set for for many other? There's a lot of people upset at their the terms of either their employee contract or just their as a contract worker, and this does open the door. Um, and as as a company, I would be very very upset with this. Well, again, I think yeah, I think it, you know it'll. It, it will be an interesting case and it'll be interesting to see how it's applied uh, and referred to in subsequent subsequent litigation. But again, you know, we're not talking about a basic 
three-page independent contractor or or employee relationship. And again, I you know I I often, as I said before, you know I point people towards some of the online contracts that they quote unquote agree with. Um, and I think you know this is a, an, an interesting case in that regard because I think it will have implications for online contracts that people agree to all the time, and you know it will certainly uh, have impact digital privacy claims and concerns around around those issues as well. And that you know the, I think the the lesson and the takeaway for employers is make sure you're drafting clear, concise, and succinct agreements with with either your employees or those individuals that you intend to contract with on, as independent contractors you know the language has to be has to be clear and we we can't have 30 40 page agreements uh, i have not read through the entirety of this of this agreement that heller had with with uber so i don't want to i don't want to get into the the ins and outs of that but you know certainly some of the contracts that i see frequently when i'm engaging with particular products online they're insane i mean they're completely they're completely insane and i often wonder um, what the enforceability of some of the provisions in these contracts would be if they were ever actually challenged um, but you know to your point cam you said you know i think this is very canadian well um, funny enough, earlier this week, California said that it plans to ask a state court judge to force Uber and Lyft to classify their drivers as employees as as well. And I would not be surprised if, um, if at the very least, they sort of look to the Heller decision, um, at least as it pertains to to the enforceability of the arbitration clause in the contract. And I think it will be interesting as Heller's case proceeds um and if he if he is able to get his action certified as a class action so that's a process you have to go through through the courts you have to ask the court and and demonstrate to the court that again it is in the best interests of all parties involved that the matter be certified and proceed as a class proceeding rather than all of those individuals filing individual lawsuits as as separate plaintiffs so Again, I think this will be very, very interesting to see. Um, I think it could have very, very significant implications for not only Uber and Lyft, but other sort of gig economy corporations that have established independent contractor relationships, be it in Canada or or um, or in other countries. So I, I want to address this a little bit, uh, a little bit bigger picture. I mean, first of all, I am no fan of Uber. I, I've actually followed the company very closely. Uh, Travis Kalanick was, by all accounts, basically a jerk. Um, and some of the things that he did as CEO, and even after he was CEO, um, are, are horrific. They're awful. Um, and so, I mean, the company has, has basically flouted laws and regulations in every country and region that they've gone to. There's been, um, you know, all kinds of, of issues over insurance and safety of the drivers and passengers, um, all kinds of things. So, I mean, it, it has been kind of a, a reprehensible company, actually. So I, I have no, no love for Uber. Um, don't get me wrong there. But, but I do want to stand up a little bit just for the idea of the, of the gig economy, because I, I do hear in some quarters people complaining uh, about some of the, the downsides of it. And, and they are some of those things are legit. I get it. But like I said at the, at the beginning, there, there are some trade-offs here. Like to many, in many ways, I, I, I wish I had the gig economy when I was in my, you know, mid teens, late teens, early twenties, because I think there are so many other things that I could have potentially done. I mean, I, I worked in radio in Vancouver. I, I look now at some, you know, producers or very junior staff at 
radio stations where their name gets out there a little bit. And that's enough for them to sort of start their own podcast and build their own, their own empire. Like an option like that was never, never available to me. You look at uh, Uber where, you know, if I had a few hours or a free Saturday or an evening free, um, I didn't have the luxury of just getting in my car and driving a few people around to getting some pocket change. I mean, that's, that's a really cool thing to be able to do. And it's not just that. You look at, I mean, there's uh, freelancer.com, fiverr.com, all these websites that you are able to go and make a bit of money pretty easily. Now, yes, these are not uh, protected positions. They're all contracted positions. And they are all not really meant to be careers. So I get that side of it. But the gig economy, to me, has been has been huge for people getting experience, for them to to make money, to network, to build their skills. And I think it's much better off for, for people and for the workers and for companies to have the gig economy around. Well, okay, look, I, I mean, do I think that there are benefits in certain circumstances to, to the gig economy and, and an independent contractor relationship? Of course, of course there are. Um, where I struggle with it and where I struggle with it as an employment lawyer is when I have, you know, someone come to me with a, you know, they're having a dispute with their employer and, you know, I asked to see their contract and I realize that the relationship has been created as one, as an independent contractor. And then I start to ask them questions about that relationship. And I say, well, you know, so do you work from, do you work from home from your home office? No, no, no. I, I, I work from the company's office. Okay. Do you use your own computer and your own equipment when you're working for that company? No, 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 no. They know, you know, I have a, I have a desk at the office and I use, use their equipment. Okay. Um, do you do work for any other companies in, in this capacity? No, no, no. I only work for them. Okay. Are, are you working in a part-time base? No, no, no. I work 40 hours a week, five days a yeah, week. Well, yeah. that, that's not, that's not an independent contractor. And what that is, is effectively an employer that's trying to take advantage of the benefits of structuring that relationship as an independent contractor. But also, and this is another takeaway for employers, Cam, employers have to be careful when they structure these relationships because it doesn't matter if you've established an agreement. And again, I'm talking about in Canada, um, specifically in, in, in Ontario. But I mean, again, much of these protections exist in other jurisdictions in the province, other provinces, and presumably at least in some of the states in the US, I would suspect. But, you know, the employers can get into trouble here. They want to structure the relationship as an independent contractor relationship. But if it isn't, you know, if factually it isn't, then it doesn't matter whether that's that was what the what the contract was initially structured as that means that that individual if they've broken or if the employer has terminated that independent contractor relationship that employer could be liable to pay that employee termination and severance pay um and could be subject to you know back pay in terms of vacation um or public holiday pay so employers have to be very careful as well that if they intend to structure these relationships as true independent contractor relationships, that that is in fact what the relationship is because they can fall into all kinds of financial repercussions if, if they don't. Yeah. What you're describing, I have a real problem with because that is to, that, that to me is almost fraud because you're having somebody come in and work for you day after day after day. And yeah, you're providing them equipment. They're coming into your office that, that that's an employee. And so I, I understand 
that. And I, I would agree with that. But I would like to point to a, a bigger issue that has kind of stuck with me, actually. I think some of our listeners may be aware of this, the idea of, of stakeholder capitalism. And, you know, when I was in Davos earlier this year, pre-COVID, actually, it was just kind of breaking when, when we were there. Um, it was the it was the issue du jour. It was what was on every CEO's lips because there are concerns now. I mean, I remember it was the CEO of I was Cisco or I don't, I don't think it was Cisco exactly. Saying though that in um, in San Francisco there are no there's not enough teachers and because there's not enough teachers it's very hard to recruit staff uh, you know high high price staff to move to San Francisco because there's no no school for their kids to go to there's not enough teachers there. and how companies do rely on more than uh, more than just sort of profit making there's an impact on the community that affects the companies but by law as you know there's a fiduciary duty of a director of a company to put shareholders first. And so because of that, they, they, they legally have to do something if it helps cut costs. There's no, there's no way around that. And this is leading to all kinds of problems because they brought up one example where they said if, if, you, had a, if you had a company that was um, uh, a software company, and it had all kinds of uh, climate change programs and it was very involved in the community and it supported charities and it had, you know, programs for, for nurses and teachers. Um, and uh, a company was bidding to buy this, this deep community involved company. If company A was trying to buy it uh, for uh, $1 and company B was going to buy it and they offered $2, but company B said they're going to remove all of that community stuff, all of the CSR, all of the charities, all of the community involvement. The directors have to sell to B because it's, a, it's more money. They, they can't consider that other stuff. And this is, this is a huge problem just with capital, capitalism in general because this isn't just people seeking money. It is their duty to make as much money as possible. And when they don't do that, they're not carrying out their duty. And, uh, you know, how, how to change this and how to include other stakeholders beyond just shareholders is something that's being discussed. I don't know if we're going to get very far with it. BlackRock has already come out and, uh, and supported this. Goldman Sachs has already said that uh, in the U.S. they will not help any company IPO if there's no females on the board. So that's one example. Um, so it, it, it's coming, but it, it does kind of go to what you're talking about, Ewan, from big picture to sort of smaller picture, um, which is just trying to treat people right. And what are the incentives to do so? And what are the incentives not to do so? And I think we need to sort of rethink that incentive structure if we expect that behavior to change. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So one thing that's been going on for a while and you're uh, familiar with is doxing and it's going out, seeing somebody do something awful online uh, or someone doing something good online, whatever it might be, uh, and, and finding out who they are, finding out their name, their address, their family. Do they have kids? Where do they work? Um, all of that sort of stuff. Usually this is in an effort uh, to shame people. Now, there was an incident very recently, um, and it was uh, an older man who was in Philadelphia, and he was pulling down uh, Black Lives Matter signs from the side of the road. And uh, 
you can see him pulling these signs down and you can hear a woman off camera uh, shouting, you know, don't take those signs down. What are you doing? And he said, uh, I live here. I'm taking these down. I, I pay taxes. He said, I can do what I want. And she shouted, uh, Black Lives Matter. And he said, not to me, they don't. And continued taking down the signs. This guy worked at the city of Philadelphia and he was fired after it was discovered who he was. Now there's uh there's another incident. It's uh, I'd say it's similar, but not, and not quite as um, not quite as racist perhaps. Uh, but this happened just the other day in a uh, supermarket in, uh, in California. Uh, this is actually a few videos strung together. So you'll hear some little, uh, little clips in between them. Um, but they're all part of the, the same incident. Here you go. Y'all, Karen is showing out in Trader Joe's. She does not have on a mask. And somebody said, fuck you, leave. And she is having it up. Trader Joe's. This is day one. This is opening day of Trader Joe's in North Hollywood. This is Karen. She's angry. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Wow. In the footage, uh, I, I got to go to Trader Joe's. I've never been to Trader Joe's. But, uh, um, I have friends love it. Um, in, in the video, uh, you can see her carrying a, 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 a basket. And at one point, yeah, she does throw it to the ground. And then she shouts out Democratic pigs um, at the staff who were very calm and very helpful. And, and one woman was standing there with a bottle of, uh, of disinfectant <laughs> to try and uh, be of assistance. Um, but she, she melted down. Now, uh, in her case as well, she has also been named. Uh, there has not been any fallout from that yet. But it is amazing how quickly these days uh, people can find your information. And it's getting easier and easier, uh, primarily due to facial recognition. Um, so anyone who has you know, uh, an iPhone or an Android phone of recent vintage will know how quick uh, facial, I, facial recognition is. Facebook is obviously the master at it. And I remember, uh, this is now a couple of years ago, they had a, a, a photograph from a concert where there were thousands of people in the crowd and it identified all of them, I think, except for four, um, just through their Facebook accounts and matching it with, with pictures in their accounts. So people can be uh, identified very, very quickly through this. But the reason I bring this up, Ewan, is because people have to be careful now. I still think, and I, I see this largely with older people because it's something that they're still not used to. I think the guy in Philadelphia is such a good example of that. And I'm going to include uh, a link to that in the show notes. But that you can assume if you have any kind of public interaction or any kind of uh, public anger, even if justified, that it could be in a video and it could go viral very, very quickly. And I think this is something we really have to assume is happening anytime we're in public. And it is new. I think it, it doesn't feel new to, to millennials or Gen Z, uh, but to a lot of people, it, it, it does feel new. I think in this case with this woman in Trader Joe's, it looks like after the fact that she did go in there on purpose to cause a scene because some on Twitter were saying she was in line outside of Trader Joe's wearing a mask. 
And then when she got in, she took the mask off and she began walking up to people very closely to try and provoke uh, some kind of altercation. And indeed, her basket was empty the entire time. So even when she threw it, there was there was nothing nothing in it. So it looked like she wanted to make a uh, political statement uh, doing what she did. And I believe she said something. I saw this circulating as well. She said something re- related to QAnon. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Ewan, but um, it's a it's a conspiracy theory in the United States, and so it looks like she may she may believe in some of that as well. Um, no, but, but it's just not a, a conspiracy theory, Cam. It's very real. It's all very <laughs> real. You know, uh, it, let me digress for a second. Uh, there is a newsletter out there uh, called Right Richter, and it's written by a journalist, a very mainstream journalist now, at The Daily Beast. But all it does every week is dive into the sort of right-wing uh, media sphere, the Alex Joneses of the world. Um, and it, it's, it's actually absolutely fascinating. It's one of my favorite newsletters um, that, I, that I read each week. So, so I, will, I will include it in there because it, when, when you read it, you will feel some despair for the United States. Um, but anyway... Uh, yes, be careful. Be careful when you're going out there because you're being taped. Well, we remember we we talked about this in uh, it was episode eight uh, with Amy Cooper, the, the the woman who was walking through Central Park with her her dog, and she proceeded to completely lose it on Christian Cooper, who was a black man who was bird watching at the time, and she absolutely played played the race card in calling the police on Christian Cooper. And subsequently lost her job. People did a little researching, a little bit of doxing, found out she worked at Franklin Templeton, brought it to Franklin Templeton's uh, attention, and she was subsequently fired. So, you know, I guess my, my question to you, Cam, is, you know, how how should companies deal with these sorts of situations? Because, of course, there are significant PR and marketing implications, you know, perhaps good and bad, depending on how they, how they deal with the situation as an opportunity. But I mean, what, I mean, what would you, how do you recommend or that companies deal with these sorts of situations when they, when they come to light? Okay. It was episode number eight. Yeah. I did just look that up. If you wanted to hear the Amy Cooper story, yeah, we play the audio and everything. Go back. Uh, We'll put a link to to episode eight in the show notes. Um, You know, you and I'm I'm actually uh, quite unsettled about all of this. Um, because it, to some degree, this is sort of mob justice, and it worries me. Um, because I mean, a lot of the people that are being doxxed, whether whether they deserve it or not, there's some very zealous individuals that are trying to really destroy these people's lives. I mean, that's the purpose of trying to figure out who they are. Uh, so you can go to their employer, and you can go to their family, and um, you know any other social ties that they've got, and try and try and break those. So it's it's very unhealthy to me and it's very concerning to me because it's it's easy to say okay this woman deserved it or i mean the the older guy in philadelphia again I, when i watched the video i thought yeah he he shouldn't have a job with the city uh, when he's basically saying he's racist publicly um and so it feels justified you say okay well the the ends justify the means but the days are are coming when there are innocent people that are going to get caught up in this. And even with the meltdown in the supermarket that we just heard, I did see one female on Twitter say, look, this woman had a bad day. She, you know, who knows what happened to her that morning? And we're going to name her and try and destroy her life because of her, her bad day. Well, we don't think it's just a bad day, but it could be with somebody else. It could be with the the next person um, that we that we decide to dox. And I think 
we are in a political environment, especially in the U.S., but I mean, there's some similarities to Hong Kong now, too, with how people talk about China or Hong Kong or which side of the, the aisle that they are on. Some things are just no longer acceptable. And I think in the cases of companies, they have to be very careful because it's not really about what's right or wrong now. It's about you know, managing risk as best you can. So when you have a situation where someone is outrightly racist, I think it's fully within the company's rights to let that person go. And I think usually, usually they should. I think there, there, there may be exceptions depending on the job or what was said, or if it was racist or not, if there was some, you know, some debate over that it's, it's, this is not a one size fits all kind of thing. And what scares me though, is this mob justice where companies I think are going to feel pressured to fire people um, no matter what, because if they don't, that mob, justice is going to be focused on the company rather than just the person uh, until they take action. And so I think companies want to avoid, uh, you know, being in the, in, in, in the firing line, you know, when this happens. So I think it, you know, it really depends on the company, the, the role the person had, you know, the, the, the company's business, all of those things do matter. But in general, if somebody does something either violent or racist or sexist or, or extremely damaging that, Yes, I would lean towards letting letting the employee go. Um, I think that's the environment we're in. That's that's the PR advice. What I actually think is the right thing to do is to really take a look at what they did, really have a conversation with the employee, find out what happened that day, get as many facts as you can uh, to, to to build a case, and then make a decision. But I, I don't think we have the time now to do that. I don't think companies have that luxury because the longer they wait, the more pressure they're going to face. And is it worth risking the entire company over one person's behavior? No, 99 out of 100 times it's not. So that's that's the reality that we're living in. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The timelines for for reaction are they're so small now, right? I mean, they're, they're, you have to sort of jump to your position very, very quickly. I mean, we even saw that with 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 Amy Cooper and Franklin Templeton. As I recall, she was initially put on, admi- on administrative leave um, while the company investigated. And I remember there was just a huge uproar on Twitter saying, well, what do you have to investigate? She should be, she should be terminated. But, you know, at the same time, employers i mean they have policies and procedures and and an investigation process that they that they have to they have to go through and it's not justifying or defending the actions of employees often in these circumstances it's that you know if you're a large company you have to abide by the policies and procedures that you effectively enforce upon your employees you have to be seen to be adhering to them yourself um but i mean in amy cooper's case I think it was t- within 24 hours she was she was terminated from from the company, um, but you have to move fast because if you don't move fast, you know to your point, Cam. I mean the 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 Twitter mobs will will come after you. They're going to be on it right away. The doxing will happen almost right away. So companies, um, you know, often they're not even in a situation where they have the opportunity to sort of launch a formal investigation. And again. You know, another thing to consider and why there is value in, in, in these formal investigations is that often it's not an isolated case. It's not isolated to this one employee who was caught, you know, on, in, in a video on somebody's, somebody's phone, uh, you know, uttering a racial slur or acting inappropriately. It could be 
indicative of a larger issue within the company that the company might want to very, very seriously address, be it through, you know, some racial sensitivity training or, you know, discussions around discrimination and harassment in the workplace. Uh, there could be there could be other individuals that have been doing the very, very same thing and getting away with bad behavior. And the company wants to take the time to investigate it. Well, they may not have the time anymore um, because of because of sort of the the instantaneous nature and speed at which social media works. So while I think that, you know, to your point, frankly, there's no place for that behavior in in any company. Um, you know, the companies have to be afforded time to sort of investigate and get to the root of what the problem is so that they can, again, try to ensure that similar incidents don't occur with other employees, be it in the workplace or outside of the workplace. That's what companies aspire for, but it it's just not there in, in reality. I mean, you, you're absolutely right. Companies usually have policies to deal with behavior that is... Um, that is immoral or is causing damage to the company's reputation or things like that. And um, yeah, it should be a procedure to go through that, but these are not ordinary cases of sort of questionable employee behavior. These become front page or, or, or widely viewed videos that pose a risk to the reputation of the entire business. And so when you go to that scale, it it sort of takes it out of the the procedural uh, people and moves it to a, a crisis communications and business level of of the 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 priority becomes solve this get us out of the crisis asap stop talking about us how do we how do we just deal with this quickly and move on without much attention and that becomes the priority and the employee loses out. Uh, as a result of that, and th- and this is why. And uh, again, don't get me wrong; the, these these people that are saying racist things, I do believe they should be let go. But I'm saying just because we have the the sort of moral righteousness on our side on these cases, it doesn't mean it will always be so. And when we're managing things this way, there's a very good chance that one of these times we're we're going to get it wrong. And and I I don't think companies should be making these kinds of decisions over fear of social media mobs. There's something that just feels so wrong about that. We have to do it because it's the reality. I mean, I think you deal with this in law as well. Like, yeah, there's ways we would like to do this. There's ways we would like to handle it, but this is how the world works right now. And this is just what's going to happen if we do respond or if we don't respond. And so we have to work in reality and it, it means, yeah, firing the person quickly. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Like when I see that, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good still. Um, and I think this is a bigger question in general that goes even beyond the employer and the employee into just what is okay to say, what's not okay to say. Like where, where, where do we draw the line now on just accepting differences of opinion? Um, because it feels like right now, if somebody says something that's contrary to sort of the, uh, the accepted norm that there's no longer just a, I disagree with you. It's a, I must destroy your entire career and your life uh, as a result of that. And uh, yeah, I, this, this could go, this could go wrong quickly. And you know, it's interesting. I talked to a person in mainland China the other day who I don't talk to very often. And they mentioned uh, the controversy over black lives matter. And he said, this reminds me of the cultural revolution in China. And I thought, interesting. 
Because back then you had to come out and obviously, you know, repeat lines in Mao's little red book and prove that you were as red as red could be. And it's, you know, you, you look at the, at the, at the Black Lives Matter movement, Black Lives Matter movement, which I fully support. I mean, you are seeing companies are all coming out one by one by one, putting out their statements. Athletes are putting out statements. Actors are putting out statements. I mean, everybody feels they need to prove their bona fides. They need to show that they're on side with it. Even if they don't feel strongly, it's they're compelled to do so because of the toxic political environment. And, and that, yeah, that doesn't feel right at all. Well, yeah, we, we, we've talked about this before as well. And, and look, and I, I, I'm happy that, that companies are, are taking a stand and taking a position on this. But as, you know, as, as, as I pointed out um, in, in the past, it has, there has to be some substantive change and that the public's pretty savvy at, 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 you know, deciphering, uh, well, for lack of a better term, bullshit. I mean, they're able to call bullshit on advertising when it, when it looks like it's self-serving and, and empty. And, you know, I think it's great that companies are, are looking internally at policies and procedures manuals at looking at, you know, cultures of discrimination and potential harassment internally. I think this is, this is fantastic when they do that, when they reflect internally and, and recognize that, you know what, we need to make some changes. That's when, you know, I think it's easy to get behind and support the companies that, that are taking a stand. It's something else entirely, however, to just release a statement on Twitter that's not how we address systemic issues, particularly around discrimination in the workplace. That's really that that's that's grossly inadequate. And I think that when companies are just issuing those statements and not doing anything more, I mean, not only does that sort of, you know, set off your spidey senses from the public, but think about the employees within those companies. I mean, the employees within those companies, they're very much aware of that. And they will be cognizant of the fact that, well, hey, it's great that, you know, the people at the top issued this statement, but they're not doing anything. And I can tell you that I've experienced all kinds of circumstances of, of discrimination internally. So they're just paying lip service to a cause. And that is becoming less and less acceptable. I think that's been going on for a very long time. And I think it's encouraging to see some companies actually beginning to announce policies or announce changes um, as a result of, of the movement. Um, but I did just want to want to close this by mentioning, uh, you know, the New York Times uh, controversy from a couple weeks ago, where Senator Tom Cotton had a had an op-ed published by the New York Times. That op-ed rule... Uh, said it was in favor of deploying the military to clear the streets of protesters. Now, yeah, that's that's a horrible thing to do. It's uh, obviously not a not an overly popular position to take, but yet it is a position that is held by millions and millions of people in the United States and he is an elected senator in the United States. And so if we're if the mob is saying we cannot let even his views be heard, I think we're in trouble. And I think part of this kind of behavior is what led to Donald Trump's election in the first place is people pushing back on being told what to think, what, how they should be thinking, how they should be speaking, how, how they should be behaving. Um, and, and now they're being told that not only do people disagree with their views, but they're not even suitable to be run in a newspaper in an article written by a senator. And that's a, that's a, that's a big step. So I, I don't know where this line is. Because I still lean towards at least hearing, you know, different sides of an argument. Uh, I think maybe we can go into this maybe in another in another episode because it, it is a fascinating subject and it's very very pertinent 
right now because there's a movement for some to say, look, journalism should have a moral clarity. You know, it should be in support of something and doing the right thing. Um, but it's not so easy. It's not so easy because people's morals are very different, <laughs> as as you know. And so this is something I suspect is going to come up uh, on the show again. All right, Doc, what have you got for uh, recommendations? <laughs> so this is uh, you, you just bear with me a little bit here, Cam. I, I mean, as you know, I'm I'm a bit of a, a music nerd. Um, yes. And one of my favorite reads every week is the review that Pitchfork does every Sunday. They look at an album and and do an in-depth look from the past. And, and any record that is not in the Pitchfork archives is eligible. So that, that's the only criteria. It has to be a record that they haven't reviewed um, and they can kind of look at it. And what I love about these reviews every Sunday, you know, it's just one, they just do one every Sunday, is that they really give some greater context in terms of why this record is significant, why we're taking the time to talk about it, um, reflecting on whatever was going on politically or socially or within that particular band or artist. This week, though, um, Cam, the record is Pure Moods. Pure Moods Volume 1. Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Wow, this is a flashback. Yeah, right? This was the commercial for Pure Moods. Um, so if you're, if you're a teenager in the 90s, guaranteed... You saw that commercial, that Pure Moods commercial. Uh, anyway, this is the record that that Pitchfork was examining this week, and I just wanted uh, to suggest it as a read. It's a really, really fascinating read, and part of what's so interesting about it is it gives an entire backstory on Richard Branson, and the relationship between Richard Branson and Pure Moods is that Pure Moods was released under Richard Branson's record label, and I didn't know that. In 1970, Branson was running a, you know, a pop lifestyle magazine apparently called called The Student, and he noticed at the time that the UK's retail price maintenance agreement had been lifted. This was the agreement that effectively regulated the price of vinyl records cam in the UK. So they were fixed, and it was lifted without much fanfare, nobody really talked about it, and Richard Branson saw an opportunity. And he started selling records at a discount of about 10 to 25% cheaper than anybody else. And thus, you know, the, the Virgin Record label was born. But Pure Moods was put out by Virgin Records. And it was a compilation oh, right. album. And the other reason that sort of, it's sort of interesting is that it was an experiment. It was basically done on a lark to see if an album could be successfully telemarketed and sold far beyond its or before its release date. So Pure Moods, Volume 1, ended up send it selling 2 million copies before its formal release date. Um, you know, back in the days when CDs were $17.99 or, or almost 20 bucks. Anyway, so we're, we're talking about artists like Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells is on here. They've got a couple Enigma tracks. Yeah, I'm going to have to 
innocence stuck Return in my Return to innocence. That's right. Good good luck. It's going to be stuck there for, yeah. for, for ages. Anyway, a really, really interesting article and backstory on, on the emergence of Richard Branson and, and Virgin Records and this, this sort of experiment, experimental idea of telemarketing records on TV through a commercial before the, before the release date. Um, and of course, you know, it just opened the floodgates. And if you recall, Cam, in, uh, you know, about the mid nineties, there were all kinds of these sort of compilation albums that were being advertised on television. Well, Richard, Richard Branson was the one who started it all apparently. Yeah. And I think, uh, somewhere, uh, there's mail being sent to me from Columbia house records asking for payment. I don't know. Probably. I I filled that thing out a few times getting the CDs for 99 cents or whatever. Jeez, what a different, I mean, you know, it's not that long ago. You know what I mean? Like, but look at how different it is today. I mean, it's entirely different. Everything about that is different. Um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to some Enigma now that you've, uh, you've got it in my head. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention also kind of, uh, kind of different. I had a friend send me an article. Um, it's, it's a friend of mine who uh, he's kind of a nightlife guy. He likes to go a lot. And so he sent me this article and it's called the secret economy of a VIP party. And I thought, okay, this is going to be some like local, you know, website posting something or some party site. No, it's the economist actually. And, um, it's a feature in their 1843 magazine and I'll, obviously I'll put the link in, in the show notes, but it goes into the economics around these parties, uh, who goes to them, how they're managed, um, how people are recruited to take part and how they sort of, uh, create an, uh, a feeling of spontaneity when in fact everything is so well planned and it talks about how, yeah, some people drop, you know, a hundred thousand us dollars in one night, uh, going, going to a club. Actually, that's not that unheard of. There's people that drop a lot more, 10 times more than that. In fact, uh, has happened. So, um, it is, it, it was kind of an eye opening thing. I think we all kind of know, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background when you have these sort of super clubs with mega VIPs and models and DJs. Uh, but this really does break it down and looking at some of the costs, looking at how it's done, how it's planned, what people actually have to do. And once I started reading it, I thought, ah, I, I couldn't stop reading it. <laughs> it, was, it was actually that interesting. And I'm way out of the age of uh, nightclubs and VIP parties. I was never a VIP anyway. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a very good read. So I, I'll include a link to that as well. Who knew The Economist would dig into uh, nightclubs? But there you go. Anything else, Ewan, you want to add before we wrap up episode 12? That's it, my end. That's it. Uh, okay. So anyway, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, episode 12. Again, if you, uh, if you enjoyed the show, if you liked any of the topics we talked about today, please share them uh, with a friend or a family member or a coworker. It's the best way for us to get uh, word out about the show. Uh, and it means a lot to us. You can also follow us uh, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our account name is PR Law Podcast. And if you have questions, you can tag us on social media at hashtag PR Law Pod. So that's it for episode 12. For Ewan, this is Cam McMurchie. We'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 